Darkness is not an affirmative force. It simply reoccupies the space vacated by the light. This is the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. It should be uncomfortable for a believer to live as a hypocrite. Delivering people out of the bondage of mainstream media and the philosophies of this world. God has called you and me to be his ambassadors. Even in this dark moment, let's not miss our moment. And now, the Hamilton Corner. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio. I'm your host, Abraham Hamilton III. Ready to rock and roll with today's edition of the program. At this very moment, many of you, if not most of you, are making that transition from your part-time jobs where you generate an income to your full-time jobs where you cultivate an outcome. And as you're making that transition, as we do on a daily basis, I want to remind you that what goes on in your house is far more important than what goes on in the White House. Doesn't make the White House's operations unimportant, not in the least bit. Doesn't make the other things that we're involved in in our lives unimportant, not, not in the least bit. But we must understand the primacy that God places on family and allow his understanding or his communication to govern our understanding of engaging with our families. So as you're doing life, going about life, going about work, going about play, going about the different things that you have going on in your lives, please remember, please remember that a primary context in which you and I have been, have been planted through which and in which to serve our God and our King is through our families. The first institution that God created was the family. The first command, this is important, and it is instructive. The first command that God gave to mankind, he gave to mankind within the familial context. Before modern civil government, before an order of prophets, before an order of priests, the first institution that God established was the family. Guys, that, that is intentionally done. So as you're transitioning from your part-time jobs to your full-time jobs, do so with, the, with that understanding and allow it to govern how you make your transition to your full-time work. Praise God. Well, we have a lot to do today. I learned some information. I'm going to have to issue a correction in the second segment for some things I said yesterday. Uh, but we'll, we'll do that. But we want to. Begin with the word of God, as always. The word of God must, must be our foundational rubric. John chapter 15 is where we want to go back to today. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to focus. And I may refer to verse 7 as well. Uh, but it's important to understand this. This is Jesus speaking, and this is recorded um, as a part of the upper room discourse that the Apostle John documents. All right. This is uh, the immediate conversations that Jesus has with his disciples prior to ultimately the crucifixion. All right. John 15, John 15, verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide 
in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. One of the first things that should be noted here is that Jesus explains pruning is actually something that is applied to fruit bearers. All too often, people misunderstand God's pruning. Sometimes people think pruning is condemnation or repudiation or, or some type of negative phenomenon. We must, we must understand that pruning is for fruit bearers. If you are already fruit producing, bearing fruit in God's economy, it is those who become fit for pruning. Now, many of you know that, you know, I'm, I'm not a farm boy. I didn't, I didn't grow up on a farm or anything. I grew up in the hood. That's where I grew up. But I have friends now who are farmers. And I had one brother who's a member of our local church. And he said this after I preached a sermon on this very, very text, this very text. He said, Brother Abe, you know what? <laughs> if when you're on the farm, the additional fruit is only produced in the spots, in the locations where the pruning is applied. <laughs> New fruit comes from the place where the pruning has been applied. Another thing you need to know is that you could have a fruit producing crop, fruit producing plant. And if you leave it unpruned, it'll stop producing fruit. <laughs> it's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he explained what I just read to you from John chapter 15. Pruning is for fruit bearers. I'm sharing this so that we don't misunderstand God's pruning. Then after discussing and describing pruning, Jesus says, Abide in me. <laughs> the pruning is not meant to cause you to become estranged from him. It's actually an, an invitation to come closer. And when the Lord encourages us to abide, to take up habitation, to take up residence in him, to where we make faithfulness to him and communion with him and living in and through and by his spirit, to make that our habitation, to make that our abode, not a visitation. Not when the circumstances are just right or not just when an emergency takes place, but that in him, as the Apostle Paul articulates, quoting some of the poets, foreign poets, in him we live and move and have our very being. And recognizing that he's divine and we the branches, we are the branches, and apart from him we can do nothing. Which moves ultimately, not ultimately, but moves advancingly, I should say, to verse 7 in the same chapter, where Jesus finally, finally says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. So that's a dual phenomenon of residency. Us abiding in him, the consequences or the byproduct of us abiding in him is that his word 
His words will abide in us. As a result of that phenomenon taking place, he then says, ask what you will, and it will be done for you. Now, in our materialistic, self-absorbed context, most of the times when this scripture is discussed in our day and our time, most people focus on the asking. Ask whatever I want, anything? No. Make the requests, make the asks of one who abides in him and his words abide in us. What should be glaringly apparent is that the entire thrust of this scripture is to focus more, more so on the abiding than the asking. The Apostle James says the reason why you do not receive when you ask is because you ask amiss. It's a revelation or an exposure of the failure to abide. <laughs> when we abide in him, when his word abides in us, that abiding of ourselves in him and his words in us precedes and colors the asking. The asking will be governed and superintended by abiding in him. The asking will be governed and superintended by his word abiding in us. The requests will be consistent with his word. The requests will be consistent with his will. The requests will be consistent with his timing. The requests will be consistent with his context. We don't want to allow scripture like this to get us or to move us or to distract us away from the core thrust of what is being communicated. It is an invitation to abide, to abide. When we abide in him, it moves us out of being fair weather believers, fair weather followers. You know, at one point, you know, the disciples remarked, Jesus, look at all of these crowds that are following you. And Jesus said, man, these people are following me for the fish and the loaves. Basically saying the moment that I stopped feeding them physically is the moment that they will no longer follow me. The appearance of them following is not a full-throated, uh, faith-filled investment in who they recognize as Messiah. What they're doing is following the uh, the food truck. <laughs> they're following uh, the way to have their rumbling tummies satisfied. And if I can just, you know, instead of having to go fish or to go do these other things, if I could just follow him and get fed. And of course, this discourse happened after the miracle of the fish and loaves where Jesus multiplies the fish and loaves and distributes them at the disciples' hands. But Jesus explains to man that they're, they're following me not out of not out of a heartfelt or or or, or faith-filled commitment to me. They're following me for the benefits as they perceive them. Christ <laughs> is not averse to allowing us to enjoy his benefits. But the reality is he wants us to pursue him for him. Remember, as Dr. Luke recorded, uh, when Cleopas and his companion were on the road to Emmaus after Christ, Jesus was crucified. And they left Jerusalem heading to Emmaus. And the scripture says that Jesus Christ in resurrected form came up alongside them. They couldn't recognize him because the scripture says their eyes were beholden. They were, they were beholden. They couldn't recognize him as who he was. And Jesus walks up alongside them and says, hey, what's happening, y'all? What are y'all talking about? And they respond, 
What do you mean what are you talking about? Are you the only one in Israel who don't know what's going on? The one who, who we believe was to be the Christ was just crucified. And then the scriptures record that Jesus, starting in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, started conversing with them, showing them all things concerning himself. The, the distance from Jerusalem to Emmaus was seven miles. And on the seven-mile journey, uh, he started reasoning with them from the scripture, pointing out to them that the Christ had to die and then ultimately be resurrected from the Hebrew scripture, from the Old Testament. <laughs> then when they got to Emmaus, the scripture reveals that Jesus intimated as if he was going on further, not intending to leave them, but this is an expression or recorded expression of Christ being wanted. Now, of course, he could have volunteered and initiated that, hey, I want to stay here and hang out with you guys. Uh, but he intimated as if he was going on. And then when Cleopas and his companions said, well, why don't you stay with us, man? Jesus stays. And then the scripture says that he broke bread and prayed as was his custom. And the Christ was made known to them. This is what the scripture says. In the breaking of the bread. Then immediately he was gone from them. And then the entirety of their hope was restored in that moment. And it caused Cleopas to remark, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke with us along the way? My point in raising this is that this is a microcosm, a snapshot, if you will, of Christ revealing his desire to be welcomed to the abiding phenomenon. If you're listening to, me, listening to me now and you recognize, man, I have not made Christ in his word my abode. I have not made it my habitation. At best, I've made it a visitation. Or if you're in the place where you've never submitted your life to Jesus Christ and received as a result of placing your faith in him, uh, the sealing of eternal salvation, let today be the day, man. Submit your lives to Christ. Admit your desperate need for salvation. Believe upon him and confess your sin. And you can join me and millions and billions around the world in being members of God's eternal family. If we abide in him and his word abides in us, then our prayers are consistent with that abiding. Shining light into the darkness. This is the Hamilton Corner on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner. Abraham Hamilton III here. As I mentioned in the first segment, I have to offer a correction. So yesterday I talked about Hunter Biden renting the Delaware home from his father. And at the time where he needed help, uh, when top rate rents at the time in that area were about six grand a month. And he required and uh, the big guy required him to pay 50 grand a month. I have to offer a correction. So the information that I that I secured, it came from a particular application where Hunter Biden articulated that he was paying fifty thousand dollars in rent. 
What I've found out now after additional digging is that this application is one where he lists himself falsely, unfortunately, not well, unfortunately for him, where he's listing himself as the owner of Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden's Delaware home. And his, his representation on this application of paying $50,000 in rent seems now to be for an office that he was renting at the time. Now, this is still the same time period where he didn't have a home of his own and he's living in the Delaware home that just conveniently happened to be where additional unsecured classified documents were found from Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden's time as vice president under Barack Obama. And it is it is also the exact same home that Mr. Biden now has spent a significant portion of his presidency. And it's a home that there were no visitor logs as to who came in and came out of the home. Uh, still, as there are no visitor logs now, though you spend a significant near approaching half of your time as president in this Delaware home. If this were if you were to be in the White House, uh, there would be visitor logs. But being that this is at his private residence and I get the private residence part. But what I don't get is, are, are you conducting, most likely, of course, he has been, presidential business from there? Well, then there's a reason why we normally like records of these things. But the correction that I must offer is that it seems that it was inaccurate. I want to say this clearly and explicitly. It seems that it was inaccurate to report that the $50,000 a month amount was the rent that was explicitly being required to be paid by Hunter Biden to Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden. Now, none of that changes the emails we have that Tony Bobby Lins Tony Bobby Lins Bobolinsky discussed and that we found from Hunter's laptop that indicates that he was still having to pay his father. None of that nullifies the fact that Hunter has said, Dad is taking all of my money. But on the point of the rental payments, it seems that that is not correct, and I want to be explicit about that. I tell you guys, if I say something and I learn that it's wrong, I want to correct it on the record, and so I am doing that uh, today. It is a change in that particular fact. It doesn't change the overall notion of the precarious idea of these classified documents being unsecured, this uh, ma magical seeming uh, decision on the part of oil and gas companies. And at the time, the most, one of the most corrupt nations, if not the most in the world on the financial front, Ukraine, magically paying Hunter Biden thousands of dollars a month for an industry he literally knows nothing about. Uh, a similar thing transpires with another nation in China where you have contracts between Hunter Biden's businesses and Chinese companies that are governed by the communist Chinese government. The reality that payments being made for access still seem to be accurate, but the point about the rental payments is what I wanted to correct. All right, is that clear enough, J-Mac? J-Mac says yes. All right. This is an amazing story that I wanted to share with you. According to the, let me give you the data source. According to the Texas Health and Human Services Commission, abortions, surgical abortions in Texas dropped by 99% following the Dobbs decision in which Roe, was overturned. Roe versus Wade was overturned. Planned Parenthood versus Casey was overturned. There was a 99% guys, a 
a 99% drop in surgical abortions in Texas. Let me give you some of the, some of the numbers. As I stated, according to data from the Texas Health and Human Service, Services Commission, there were only three abortions performed in surgical abortions performed in the state in August of 2022. So these numbers uh, are as of August of 2022. We do not have um, the numbers from September through the end of 2022 yet. But this is these are the numbers that we have as of August of 2022. Only three surgical abortions performed in the entire state in August of 2022. And according to their records, these were medically necessary, indicating, you know, the mother's life was jeopardized. Efforts to save the mother's life uh, resulted in the termination of the unborn child. All right. The way that the 99 percent number was arrived at is that according to Texas Health and Human Services, there were two thousand five hundred ninety six surgical abortions performed in this in the state of Texas in June of twenty twenty two. The number decreased in August to just three, which represents a 99% decrease. That is absolutely phenomenal. That is absolutely phenomenal. It seems that the combination of Roe's reversal and Texas's heartbeat abortion prohibition law, they have culminated in this 99% drop in surgical abortions in the state. Now, I mentioned surgical abortions because those numbers do not include chemical abortions and those that are performed with the abortion pills, mifepristone and mifeprostol, if I'm pronouncing that properly. But this is a huge step in the right direction in an effort to cultivate uh, a, a culture of life across our country and in and and with this documented data this this information from the state of Texas this is phenomenal this is absolutely phenomenal and this shows what can be done when you have the federal lie that's being presented as if it's law uh overturned and I want to remind you nobody saw it coming this is this is this is one of the contemporary examples in addition to the witness that we have from scripture to remind all of us that you can never conclude what is going to happen affirmatively because God ultimately is the determiner. God rules and reigns in the affairs of men. There was nobody who was, there were many people, and I told you this before, I've, I've personally spoken to people who have been advocates and activists in the fight for the sanctity of human life who never dreamed that they would see Roe overturned in their lifetimes. But it happened. We cannot allow ourselves to get to the place where we've lost all hope because the fulcrum of hope for the believer is not in contemporary events, current events. It's in the resurrected king of glory. So this is great news out of the state of Texas. And this actually would be a good, good time to mention that I'm going to be joining the First Baptist Dallas Church family um, on this coming Sunday evening, January 22nd at 5.30 p.m. as they celebrate, as I'll be joining them to celebrate uh, what God has done in our nation and specifically what God has done in the great state of Texas um, in having Roe overturned and then having some conversation about what do we do, what is the process forward to continue advancing a culture of life 
in our nation and in the state. All right, I have quite a few news items to mention. This is very interesting to me, this next story. Some of you might have seen some of this. Uh, New York City Mayor, New York. (laughs) Eric Adams is putting pressure on New York State Governor Kathy Hochul to advance a plan to have upstate New York communities to absorb some of the, the, the illegal immigrants who have surged into New York City. So the numbers are at about 40,000 illegal immigrants have flooded into the Big Apple. Uh, There seems to be quite a bit of beef because Kathy Hochul delivered her state of the state address last week. And the entire notion of illegal immigrants surging into New York City was all but completely ignored. Completely ignored. So there's this tension going on between New York City Mayor and New York State Governor, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, New York State Governor Kathy Hochul, to where Eric Adams is asking for assistance. One of the most recent numbers uh, include 835 asylum seekers arrived in one single day alone last week. And to that, I just simply say, and what do you think states like Texas and Arizona have been dealing with all of this time. And now that you're starting to feel it quite a bit in New York, now there's there's a bunch of squealing going on. Interesting. Next story. And I'm kind of moving kind of quickly because I have a lot of ground I want to (laughs) cover. For the first time since the early 1960s, China's population has declined. 2022, according to the National Bureau of Statistics, China's population declined by 850,000 people. That that declension yields a mainline China population of about 1.41 billion people. Now, they still have a lot of people, but what I'm talking about is the birth the birth rates versus the mortality rates in the state. I'm sorry, in, in the Chinese country. Many of you know that the communist government began to recognize that the demographic, the demographic winter that was upon them because of their one-child policy, which led them to rescind the one-child policy. They, they no longer enforce the one-child policy, though... The one-child policy has cultural ramifications because you can't tell people for decades that children are horrible and then all of a sudden go, we need children to sustain our nation, so y'all need to have more children. People don't move that quickly when you've been telling them for decades that children are evil. So, what has happened in 2022, in 2022 was a year that the the population decline occurred. The country reported 9.56 million births, but reported 10.41 million deaths in that year. This is the first time since the early 1960s the Chinese population has declined. Now, I mentioned that because many of you, and over the years I've talked about the demographic winter in Europe. What I mean by that demographic winter, that birth rates are below replacement rates. Uh, in nations that are heavily uh, welfare states, you know, 
Nordic nations and things of that nature, it doesn't seem that the lack of a prevalent welfare state is indicative of population increases. Actually, we've seen the opposite transpire. Well, why am I sharing all of that? Thanks to new research by two economists, one, Dr. Melissa Kearney, an economic professor at the University of Maryland, and Dr. Philip Levine, an economist at Wellesley College. They produced a study titled The Causes and Consequences of Declining U.S. Fertility. The Causes and Consequences of Declining U.S. Fertility. Their research has shown that today in the United States of America, birth rates have plummeted to the lowest recorded level since the data was first tracked in 1800. Replacement rate, the replacement rate of birth is 2.1 live births per every adult female in the nation. 2.1 children born by every female in the nation, adult female in the nation to, uh, sorry, 2.1 children born per adult female in the nation in order to sustain the current national population. Well, the U.S. birth rate, the U.S.'s birth rate, our birth rate has plummeted to 1.6 children. 1.6 children. Which is far below replacement of 2.1. Now, what's interesting, and most of you listening won't be surprised to learn this, what these economists have concluded is that the issue is not wealth. In fact, it's it's it appears that the wealthier nations in our in our in the world are the ones that are suffering the worst de declensions in birth rate. The demographic winter that has been sustained in Europe for years, which has led nations like Russia and Sweden and others to try to incentivize procreation. You know, all ex all expenses paid vacations, you know, Massive amounts of time off, six months off to incentivize procreation because they recognize that without people, their populations, without their people in their countries, their countries will, will, will implode. Well, doctors, let me get their names again right. I have it right here. Dr. Philip Levine, not to be confused with another Levine. <laughs> and Dr. Melissa Kearney, their research, their study shows that one of the primary things that's driving the plummeting U.S. birth rates, and I'll read it right from there. The prioritization of career over family has set the country on an irreversible path to economic destruction. The study goes on to say, quote, more recent cohorts of women are having fewer children over the entirety of their childbearing years. We posit instead that the sustained decline in the U.S. fertility rate more likely reflects shifted priorities across recent cohort cohorts of young adults. A prolonged U.S. fertility rate this low, specifically a rate substantially below two, would lead to slower population growth, which could in turn cause slower economic growth and present fiscal challenges for the nation. It's almost like someone, and I don't know, y'all might remember who said this, who issued the first command for mankind, and he said, be fruitful and multiply 
That fruitfulness and multiplication is what led to the ability to replenish and make the earth fruitful for human flourishing. The Hamilton Quarter Podcast and one-minute commentaries are available at AFR.net. Back to the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner, turning back to Drs. Kearney and Levine's study titled The Causes and Consequences of Declining U.S. Fertility, which was uh, published just last week. Uh, The economists went on in their study to explain that there has been, quote, a greater emphasis on spending time building careers. Adults are changing their attitudes towards having children. They are choosing to spend money and time in different ways that are coming into conflict with parenting. Some of the, the, the things that Drs. Levin and Kearney point to that could be contributing factors are increased costs with child, child rearing children as well as student debt. The observation was made that the large portions of student debt is held by people in their 20s and 30s who are at the age where traditionally people started having children. According to the U.S. Census data, now this is not just the research, the study produced by Drs. Kearney and Levine, but according to the U.S. Census data, the U.S. population is projected to begin falling as soon as 2035. 2035, which means that we would face a retraction in population. Drs. Kearney and Levin observed as a result of the U.S. Census data that we are on the trajectory now for our nation to be comprised of more grandparents than grandchildren. Think about that. Think about that. According to Drs. Kearney and Levine, the average American woman is now only having 1.6 children throughout her life, well below the level of replacement level of 2.1. This is a 15% drop from the birth rate in 2010. In 2010, the American birth rate was 1.9 children. North Dakota, South Dakota, and Alaska, according to census data, are among America's most fertile states. I'm going to say that again. North Dakota, South Dakota, and Alaska are among America's most fertile states with more than 65 Annual births per 1,000 fertile-aged women. I don't like that description, but that's the way they described it in the study, fertile-aged women. (laughs) Women who can have children. (laughs) Fertility rates dropped the most since 2005. Some of you will be surprised to hear this. Fertility rates dropped the most since 2005 in Utah, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, and California. I always say say this. Whenever you think about the Declaration of Independence articulation of Americans having the wherewithal to pursue life, liberty, and to pursue happiness, you don't get to liberty and pursuing any happiness if we don't have life. Some of the natural cons- not natural concerns uh, should we continue to progress toward being a society where there are more grandparents and grandchildren, the most obvious one should be glaringly obvious is that it compromises Medicare and Medicaid. 
You have more people drawing benefits than people that are contributing to it. So with that forecast is the necessity of collecting even more tax money and taxes from American citizens in order to sustain these massive welfare states. And again, people that are saying, well, yeah, the reason why you have this contraction is we don't have the type of uh, social safety nets that would that would incentivize childbearing. Guys, that just is statistically and demonstrably false in nations with expansive and robust welfare states. Their birth rates are still uh, plummeting far below replacement. So here's the not-so-secret secret. Money ain't the thing that's driving this. It's ideology. And many people live with a practical maxim that children are an impediment to pursuing the American dream in our nation. I'm telling you. People ask me, oh, how many children do you have? I tell them, well, they act like somebody just shocked them. Oh, Lord. Hyperventa. You must. You must. People look at my wife with some of the most. I'll say it this way, puzzling looks. And they look at her like she's an alien. How do you do it? This strange specimen. The culture of death has been so robust in our country that it is actually burgeoned over and not merely to the murder of innocent children in the womb, but it's also led to many people rejecting what the scripture describes as a blessing. All I'm saying is that a nation can't be sustained if we reject what God describes as a blessing. He said children are a blessing from the Lord. And this aversion and hostility toward children even affects much of the professing church in reality, I'm talking about. Not in, not in verbiage and articulation. But I have experienced places to where my own children were viewed in a negative light. I'll just say it like that. So we should really, really, really reconsider what our priorities are in life. And, and it seems like a, a, an oversimplification. And this is not merely my opinion. I, I'd encourage you to go read the study yourself. The title of it again is The Cause and Consequences of Declining U.S. Fertility, authored by doctors Melissa Kearney and Philip Levine, to where they discuss the changes in American priority to where it's become a lot more self-absorbed. People wanting to travel and wanting to do other things, develop, build careers, earn specific certain amounts of money. And as a result, having families has become a secondary priority. And the, the, the simple thing is that that's thing, those things can last for a while, but ultimately the entire society faces a prospective decline when we reject children a couple more stories then we're going to wrap up today's program I meant to share this yesterday uh, many of you have, have seen this and I, we have a clip for you uh, on this uh, but 
over the weekend, a flight in Nepal killed. Now it's at least 70 people that we know. There were 72 people on the entire flight, 68 passengers. And um, you had four crew members on Nepal's Yeti Airlines crash. Man, you even had a guy on the plane live streaming the crash on his social media uh, social media feed. It's crazy. The flight was comprised of 37 men, 25 women, and six children, three of which were infants, according to Nepal's Civil Aviation Authority. The flight crashed on Sunday, and almost immediately there were no signs of life. Listen to this and watch this in clip number one. Go. Hours earlier, a phone camera had caught the plane flying low, then abruptly tilting before it hit the ground. It nosedived into a gorge near Pokhara, a town popular with both Himalayan trekkers and pilgrims. Onlookers rushed to the crash site, while rescuers, including the Nepali military, scoured the wreckage for signs of life, but there were none. This is Nepal's worst civil aviation disaster in 30 years. The Yeti Airlines twin-engine turboprop had begun what air traffic control said was a normal approach to the brand new Pokhara airport when something went disastrously wrong. Now an investigation will try to determine what that was. Man, this is um, a devastating phenomenon. and I know people die on a regular basis, but my, my mind and my heart can't go beyond wondering um, whether or not people on the plane were believers. And it, it's very sobering. It's, it's very, very sobering. You know, Ecclesiastes said it's better to go to the house of mourning than to, a house of, to the house of feasting because the living take it to heart. Um, whenever I'm confronted with mortality at different different times, tra- whether it be tragedy or 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 an individual, but when I say tragedy, whether it be mass casualty events or an individual uh, expiration, it it always um, sobers me and it causes me to reflect on how invested I am and engaged I am in sharing our Lord's gospel. Another story similar, not not identical, but similar. This is different. Well, it's not even a similar story. These are different. That was a civilian crash. As you heard in the news report, the worst civilian aviation uh, event in the last 30 years in Nepal. <clears throat> also over the weekend, it was reported and it was confirmed that over 30 people were killed in a Russian strike on a civilian neighborhood's apartment building to where at least 30 people were confirmed to have been killed. An additional 79 were injured and an additional 30 on top of those numbers were unaccounted for. The thing that that's moving me, like toggling back to the, the Nepal crash story, 
uh, instantaneously there were no signs of life following the crash. Uh, unlike the Nepal story in Ukraine, there were some people who were found alive, albeit injured, some severely injured. I share these stories with you as uh, news items because these are global events that are transpiring around the country. But I also share them with you to encourage you to take stock of your engagement in proclaiming the gospel. Um, when you boil the things down to their lowest common denominators in life, the reality is that eternity is real, man. Eternity is real. And I, I'll never forget uh, Brother Don Wildman. I, I heard a recording of him talking about it's mind-blowing to consider that God would entrust his gospel to people like us. <laughs> you know, regular people like us with all kinds of quirks and shortcomings and um, all kinds of backgrounds and pasts. Sometimes I hear people say, man, you know, dealing with people who, who know my past, you know, it's kind of hard sharing the gospel with them because they know where I came from. And I often encourage them and say, man, that, that is one of the greatest sources of gospel proclamation that you can utilize because them knowing who you were before Christ gives, gives great testimony to what Christ does in the life of an individual. There is no greater investment of our time on this side of eternity than to share the life-giving gospel with as many people as possible. I want to encourage you to make that an intentional feature of your life, not just a coincidental feature, not just one that, uh, you know, I'll get to it one day at some point, but that you intentionally spend time asking God to give you opportunities to share the gospel, asking God to give you the discernment that you can be aware of those opportunities and not be oblivious to them, asking God to give you the grace and the strength that you need to do so. I understand it can be an intimidating consideration. It can be, but it only remains an intimidating consideration when you take stock of yourself as yourself and you exclude from your, cal your calculations the indwelling of the Spirit of God and the passion that our, love that our Lord has for his people, his creation. And when you think about the biblical command to love your neighbor as yourself, if you were that neighbor, that coworker, that friend, and you knew and you had not had had not heard the gospel or you had not submitted your life to Jesus Christ, would you want the Christians around you to simply placate, placate you, you know, go to the team building events, but never share the gospel with you? I don't think you would. A part of loving our neighbors as ourselves is taking full stock of the reality of eternity and allowing that reality to drive our engagement in life to where we would be committed to spend ourselves in sharing our Lord's gospel and making disciples. There are additional considerations that will flow from that civic engagement, you know, family building, you know, uh, community in all kinds of things. But the foundation of all of that must be people being re being regenerated by the spirit of God.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.